and welcome to the second episode of the Voice for Choice podcast. I am your host, Kevin Curran, and in today's discussion, we'll be looking at the looming U.S. election with a particular focus on China policy. With the gravity of the topics at hand, we hope you make the right choice. Stick around for the podcast. Joining me today will be Robert Daly. He's the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China in the United States. He has extensive experience as a U.S. diplomat in Beijing, as an interpreter for Chinese and U.S. leaders, and across uh, higher education as an educator on Chinese topics. Pleasure to have you here, Robert. Good to be with you. So I want to begin with kind of a straightforward question, but one that might have a complex answer. And that's, if you're in the Chinese leadership at the moment, what are you hoping to see on November 3rd in the United States? I think that the, the leadership in China is not always quite as unified as the American media, media portrays it to be. I've had a number of conversations on this topic with Chinese scholars and my sense, and of course, you're only going to get anecdotal answers to this because China doesn't do polling on these questions or votes. There's no reliable data. I would say that Chinese reformers and internationalists who prefer a Biden victory because they believe uh, that Biden will bring a degree of stability to relations. They understand perfectly well that US-China relations are going to remain contentious uh, for as far out as we can see, and are probably going to get more difficult, not easier. But Biden they see as being less volatile. He will have a more traditional diplomatic rhetoric. He won't be bellicose or deliberately insulting, and that helps them a lot. He will enable the expert bureaucracy, the State Department, the Defense Department, and other parts of government. And when the expert bureaucracy is functioning in the usual ways, they tend to be a force for moderation. And Biden is also expected to work uh, internationally and through dialogue and by joining things, rejoining you know, the Paris Accords. Uh, and again, working multinationally tends to smooth off the rough edges. So Chinese internationalists are for Biden. But Chinese nationalists, in my experience, are generally for Trump. Difficult as he is to deal with his abandonment of traditional notions of American leadership, uh, his insulting of allies uh, has really bled out American soft power in a way that creates an opening for China in the field of global governance. Now, China has been uh, unable to take advantage of that opening so far for reasons that we can talk about. But nevertheless, Donald Trump's suddenly saying it's America first, we're coming home. The isolationist, isolationism in his rhetoric has really helped China. In fact, early in the Trump administration, when asked about this, uh, a Chinese general said, Trump's abandonment of the field of global leadership was a great gift. He said, it was a gift, not a victory. A victory you work for. This one we didn't work for, I didn't expect, it just landed in our laps. So Chinese nationalists who want to see China as a global hegemon in the long term, and there are lots of those people, probably prefer a Trump victory. Well, you say there's lots of those people, and I'm curious, what do you see as the balance of power between those two factions? This is a big question, and even speaking of factionalism is tricky. Even what we know about the history of the Communist Party, uh, it's very reasonable to believe that there must be factions. There always have been. We know furthermore that President Xi has offended many people in the party and the military through the anti-corruption campaign. 
And there have at various times been a lot of questioning of his competence. U.S.-China relations have gotten much worse under his watch in ways that don't necessarily work for China. So given all of those factors, and given that China is a big country and people have different views, it's reasonable to think that there are factions in China. However, nobody can point to the leaders of those factions or really describe what those factions might be. You know, in the past, when Deng Xiaoping was carrying out reform, we knew that uh, Chen Yun sort of headed up the other faction, that he was more of a traditionalist and a Maoist. Under Jiang Zemin, under Hu Jintao, uh, Xi Jinping's predecessors, we knew sort of what the, the two schools were and who headed them up. And that kind of light factionalism that didn't, that didn't question the Communist Party's monopoly on power was more or less allowed by the Chinese system and was even seen at times as a constructive tension. Under Xi Jinping, there is none of that. The party is all about control and he appears to be the increasingly powerful strongman at the center of it. Uh, the uh, cult of personality emerged early 2013-2014 in his tenure. Then it seemed to go to bed for a while. Now it's coming back uh, as he becomes the people's leader. So factionalism uh, is perhaps too strong a word, but we do still know a lot about the views of people like Liu He, his chief economic advisor, who would love to see China get back on the established path to economic if not political reform. But even the path to economic reform, as the Communist Party understands it, uh, does speak for some kinds of political reforms. We just don't know that Liu He will, and others who are like-minded will actually challenge Xi Jinping. We know very little about this. It's a black box. On the point of factionalism, I did want to point to the idea that there's multiple, let's say, factions or parties in the world system. Uh, those being, for example, the United States, the European Union, and China, uh, with the European Union somewhat caught in the middle. Um, as we're seeing the U.S. reach out more to Europe, what is Europe's position on this, and is it malleable based on who wins the election on November 3rd? The election will make a difference. Uh, Europe, over the past year and a half, has come more to America's way of thinking about China. It is seeing it as a, as a security challenge, or as the European Commission said in 2019, they see China as a systemic rival. That's very strong language for the European Commission, which tends to be more conservative. Europe obviously values its trading relationship with China highly, but they share the American critique about China's management of that relationship. The Chinese economy is still not very open. It is not reciprocal. European companies face the same problems that the United States faces in China uh, with red tape, with hidden barriers to market entry, with the Chinese government's uh, support in violation of its WTO agreements of Chinese state-owned enterprises. So they share the American critique. A growing number of European uh, countries also share the American critique of Huawei and China's build-out of 5G systems. Sweden was the latest country only last week to announce that it would not let Huawei or ZTE uh, into its 5G build-out. We're waiting to see what decision Germany will make, and that could well be if they decide, as, as Sweden did and as the UK did, uh, to essentially ban Huawei, then much of the rest of Europe will follow. At the same time, China has had some success in uh, driving wedges between EU members through leveraging its wealth. Uh, so Italy, for example, has signed on to what China calls the Belt and Road Initiative, 
Uh, Portugal has a strong interest in that. Greece, um, China runs very effectively the Greek port of Piraeus and has really turned that around and made it profitable. And so Greece has been something of an advocate within the EU for Chinese uh, positions. So I would say over the past year and a half, looking at Europe broadly, it has not gone China's way. It has tilted more toward skepticism about China, but China still has uh, many tools. And while Europe has come around in many cases to the American, uh, indeed the Trump administration ways of thinking, they deeply resent the way the Trump administration has presented those views. There's been an awful lot of bullying and thuggish behavior behind closed doors from the European point of view. I'm involved in a number of discussions uh, with European uh, analysts on this and almost to a person, they say, please get another president so that we can work with you on our common interests vis-a-vis -vis China because we just can't work with these folks. Uh, so it's, it's still in play. But in the past year and a half, I would say that the United States has made progress. And do you think that that progress that's being made is based upon U.S. action or Chinese missteps in Europe? That is exactly the right question. It's based primarily on what China itself has done. Uh, it is based on what China has done domestically, as well as what it has done internationally. You know, there's a sense in most countries that value uh, enlightenment thinking and enlightenment institutions, there's a very strong sense uh, increasingly that we can't work with these folks, with the Chinese Communist Party. When you look at the record of repression at home, aggression and interference internationally, it gets hard to justify the old, you know, handshake and banquet approach to working with Beijing. You know, we have what I think is properly called cultural genocide in Xinjiang, uh, we have had it for a while in Tibet, and it seems to be getting worse as we find out that they're building the um, Xinjiang style, probably not quite as coercive, but we don't really know yet. You can look at the work of Adrian Zenz on this, but, you know, um, vocational re-education centers in Tibet, but which really have to do with mainstreaming the Tibetans. You know, the Chinese play in Xinjiang and Tibet is to basically completely eradicate cultural, ethnic, religious, social, and political autonomy by doing two things. By flooding the zone, moving more Han Chinese into Tibet and Xinjiang until they, the Tibetans and the various peoples of Xinjiang uh, become minorities uh, in their own homelands, and also by forced assimilation of these people into Han culture. And these plays ultimately are going to work. China holds all the cards, but they're horrific to watch unfold. You know, China's treatment of uh, Hong Kong, it's increasing aggression uh, against Taiwan uh, and in the South China Sea. China's build out of a sort of techno-totalitarianism through the world's first surveillance state. This stuff is genuinely appalling to Europeans uh, as it is to Americans. And increasingly, China's foreign policy uh, is about spreading and legitimizing these illiberal practices internationally. It wants the world to be more welcoming to the Chinese Communist Party. The formula for Chinese diplomacy and all action, some of it more coercive internationally, is to build deference through dependence. China wants a world that poses no obstacles and raises no objections to the Chinese Communist Party's way of doing business. 
And this is simply inadmissible in Europe, in much of Europe, as it is in the United States. So is it fair to say then that as we've been having discussions for a few years now on economic grounds, that that's missing the point of the larger ideological battle? Increasingly it is, uh, but in the United States and in Europe, we're not yet sure how to frame this. And, and we're having this discussion, a fierce discussion in the United States, uh, and we haven't really advanced it very much. If, as I said, our sense is increasingly that we, we can't work with these guys, we are losing interoperability. Uh, and that, I think, is a very strong uh, political as well as an ideological conviction that does come down really to core values. At the same time, if you follow that to that thinking to its logical conclusion, it speaks for something like a near total decoupling, which one involves enormous real costs that it's not clear we've taken account for or that we want to pay. And if we go for a complete decoupling, that itself, that kind of alienation and hostility in itself can be destabilizing and can decrease, not increase our security. So are we willing to pay the costs for decoupling with China? That's not yet clear. And two, is decoupling with China in fact does it leave us in a less safe place rather than a more safe place? Is it the better part of wisdom to push China as hard as we can, uh, but be willing to sort of, to some degree, grit our teeth and still engage with China to a degree, because that engagement and the various kinds of channels for communication that that sets up actually provides more stability, even though uh, we are holding our noses and watching our wallets at the same time. That's the nature of the discussion. We don't yet know where it goes. And, and per your initial question, Chinese actions are a key driver of this. Most Chinese actions uh, over the past several years under Xi Jinping uh, have been so blatantly self-interested, so blatantly self-regarding uh, that it's been, again, harder and harder for us to work with China. But this is, this is still in play. And uh, I think here the presidential election won't change the nature of this problem, but it might change the style in which we deal with China and style counts. Definitely. And I certainly think that the style of the U.S. will likely change, certainly uh, likely a new secretary of state that might be less combative with the Chinese. Um, but I did want to read to you a quote from Joe Biden, uh, if you can believe it, a little over a year ago in the Democratic debates um, that in my opinion, might not have so much difference in terms of style from the Trump administration. He said, sure. if we don't set the rules, we are going to, in fact, find ourselves playing by China's rules. That is why we need to organize the world and take on China and stop their corrupt practices. To me, that doesn't sound so much of an engagement policy, but again, an adversarial relationship. What do you make of that? Well, so I think we need, you know, we're in a position where adversarial versus engagement, that sort of black and white dichotomy, I don't think that serves our interests very well. I think that what uh, Biden said in that quote uh, is correct. And as you suggest, it's not that far from a lot of the things that the Trump administration has said. A great deal of what the Trump administration has said has also been correct. Uh, there are often problems with the way that they say it, um, but certain aspects of the thrust of the Trump administration's China policy, I think are essential. And there are people, um, especially at the National Security Council under Trump, who, who know China well, uh, think about it 
deeply and in complex and, and, and very useful ways, and who I think have made a positive contribution. The, the, the big issues with Trump have been failures of discipline and failures to truly prioritize China. They speak as though China is the existential threat of our time, but they don't act that way. And the most, the, the biggest failure is the failure to really engage with our allies and to not con, you know, conduct a war of all against all. You know, we can't threaten you know, South Korea and Japan uh, with tariffs and aluminum and steel and other goods at the same time that we need them on China. Same thing for Europe. We have to prioritize China, not go after our partners and allies on these other issues, make common cause with them, help them to come closer together. And here again, you know, South, uh, over, under the Trump administration, I'm not saying it's because of the Trump administration, it's for other reasons, but South Korea and Japan have become far more hostile to each other and estranged from each other. And it should have been a top priority of our diplomacy to help heal that rift. We need our two great Northeast Asian allies to be working closely with each other as well as with us. And that has been the big failure. It's not the Trump administration's basic strategic disposition toward China. Uh, it's that they haven't actually prioritized and that they have uh, just really caused offense all over the world, you know, pulling out of treaties because Obama entered into them. Uh, this general, you know, willingness to offend wherever they go and, and to bully other countries. You know, on the one hand, uh, Trump says America first, and there's this desire to pull back from American leadership. On the other hand, the Trump administration still seems to believe that when it wants to exercise American leadership in the old fashion, that they can still stride the world like a colossus and, and, and compel agreement just by requesting it. And they can't. We really have been bleeding out soft power. Much of the rest of the world has been horrified by the way that America has conducted its business domestically and internationally. And that makes it as hard for them to cooperate with us at times as it is for them to deal with China, even though in terms of ideology and their critique of China, they're closer to our end of things. So that's something that I think uh, that a Biden presidency understand that the, the Biden group understands this, and they're determined to address it. I did want to get on on that point of tariffs because certainly we can criticize the scattershot nature of uh, applying them, and we can talk about the, certainly the style, uh, let's say, misgivings of the Trump administration, but. I was curious about the tariffs themselves as a strategy to try to coerce adherence to intellectual property standards uh, or other trade policies that are beyond, let's say, the bluster of the trade deficit with China. Is this a strategy that you see continuing or do you see this completely removed by a Biden administration should he win on the third? I, I think that uh, I, I would not expect to see the Biden administration roll back tariffs as a gift to China or to signal a new kind of openness or something like a reset. I think we should avoid the reset language. You know, the, the tariffs, it's, it's been a rocky road. At the beginning of the trade war, the consensus within the United States and really internationally, both among economists as well as in foreign affairs issue experts, was that uh, the Trump administration didn't really understand the theory of trade and that the problem in US-China relations was not the trade deficit, and therefore, uh, tariffs were not the right tool. And I'd say that there was a consensus about that. Over time, uh, that shifted somewhat. It's not that the theory of trade shifted. People still felt that you know, the real problem wasn't 
the deficit and therefore tariffs in theory weren't the answer. However, people recognized the Trump administration through tariffs did create leverage, did create pressure and sort of hit the Chinese mule in the side of the head with a two by four and got its attention. And that, that was a great point one. And therefore you don't wanna roll back the tariffs even under a Biden administration. At the same time, the tariffs have clearly failed uh, in that our trade deficit with China is in fact higher than ever. China's uh, exports, including to the United States are up. Uh, we haven't really succeeded in bringing um, American companies back to the United States at any sufficient level. And so in its specific goals, no, none of those have been achieved by the Trump administration and the tariffs have been extremely expensive for the United States. It is flat out untrue that China pays the tariffs. We know this, they are paid by American importers. So when we bail out to, this, to you know, the, the tune of tens of billions of dollars, American farmers, China isn't paying that. American taxpayers are paying that. So I think that the Biden administration, if there is a Biden administration, which is by no means certain, but should he win, I think what you'll see initially in way of signaling to China that we want to conduct business in a slightly different way, is that you will not see the rollback of Trump tariffs. You will see the cessation of new provocations. So you won't have new provocations and you won't have you know, insults for insults sake. And you will see an, an interest in rejoining something like the JCPOA or the Paris Accords. It will be very clear to China as well as to allies that America is now back in the business of internationalism and even leadership, but I would not look for, and I would say that most of Biden's supporters in the China expert community would not want to see Biden coming in and simply saying the tariffs failed, we're removing the tariffs. That that would be an unearned gift to China and we've really got to keep uh, pressure on. Interesting, and you mentioned a, a lot of organizations there. Is something like the TPP back on the table that could engage a lot of other nations in the Pacific region? Yes, and I think what you'll, you'll, you'll see uh, under a, a President Biden, again, if we have one, this is probably what you would have seen had we had a President Clinton, which will be a, a decent interval and then a, a renegotiation of you know TPP uh, such that Biden can say we've, we you know we've improved it a little bit, and then uh, I hope that we will rejoin. It's not the solution to any one specific problem, but it, it is essential signaling that we're in the game in Asia Pacific region where the game is still economics. Um, so I, I think that that would be something that we would see, I would hope uh, within a year, at least a year and a half of a new Biden administration, uh, but there would have to be some uh, renegotiation involved here and a lot of messaging to the American people, many of whom really have been convinced that international uh, treaties of this kind harm the American people. Now, there, there, there are very strong counter arguments against that, but there needs to be some public education uh, to make sure that this isn't seen as a gift of, the, of, the, of a Biden administration to American partners of whom, you know, a, a lot of Americans are more suspicious of international trade. Definitely right? was a deciding, a well, certainly a contributing factor to the election in 2016. And as you rightly mentioned, we shouldn't necessarily take polls for granted or who has the lead at the moment, uh, as we saw not too long ago. Um, but I did want to close on the final oh. point because I do sit here in Central Europe. And of course, right. I'm broadcasting largely to a audience that's made up of Europeans. 
Uh, we recently had an Oxford debate, the Asia Society, um, involving a lot of members of our think tank. And the question was, uh, will Europe choose the United States over China in the future? And I was hoping you could make a choice on that matter and then justify your answer. Well, as we know, Europe does not want to have to make a choice. They hope that it is not that stark. Uh, if it is that stark, it will mean something like uh, a new Cold War. It won't be a Cold War like the Old War. I'm perfectly aware of the reasons that everybody rejects the historical Cold War analogy. Uh, but it would be a degree of mutual hostility and mutual alienation so deep uh, that that hostility, that alienation becomes an organizing principle individual countries as well as internationally. And it would certainly involve a new arms race, not only conventional and nuclear arms, but also cyber and outer space. And this is in nobody's interest uh, and is extremely wasteful and arguably an, an immoral move to make. So will, the, will Europe choose the United States over China? Obviously, there's a prior question about how unified Europe itself is, and your listeners will understand this well. Uh, China is working through the 17 plus one and other organizations uh, to try to divide and conquer if it can. And again, this is about leveraging its its wealth to build uh, deference, to build you know, deference through dependence. I think that the key factor here, two key factors, one will be, uh, well, actually three factors. One is the election. If there's a second Trump term, I think that the rest of the world, like many Americans, are going to be asking fundamental questions about what the United States is and what it means and what it stands for. So that, and that's going to have profound impact on the way that Europe sees its own interests. Number two is Europe's own um, integration and its own cohesion and ability to act as a group. Uh, and then there's China's behavior. Um, I think that we now know who Xi Jinping is I think that China is now feeling its oats coming out of COVID, so we can expect more aggression and more insistence on doing things China's way, which often means doing them in non-transparent, secret ways uh, that benefit China. So what will Europe make of that? We will see more provocations on the human rights front. We're soon going to be dealing with the death of the Dalai Lama, and that is going to be ugly. Uh, it could be even worse as a provocation internationally, than the Xinjiang camps have been, but we, we know that that's going to happen. If China pushes on Taiwan, that will make a difference. And then lastly, I think that what would compel a real choice for Europe is not you know, Chinese diplomats and American diplomats browbeating people in back rooms, although there's sure to be some of that, and I know that that's very unpleasant. The issue really is going to be whether we see the emergence of mutually exclusive systems that countries have no choice but to choose between. And I mean by that technological systems and things like the 5G build out. Will there be mutually exclusive, pick one, pick the other, you can't play both. Um, international technological regimes you have to pick between. And then when we see the emergence of separate and again, mutually exclusive financial systems, especially in, in things like payments, but you know, will China develop something like an alternate to the SWIFT system such that you can play in one financial ground or in the other. And that will compel choices. So uh, I think it's avoidable with deft diplomacy, uh, which I hope America will start to begin exercising. Uh, but it is no, by no means certain that China won't have to pick between separate, separate systems, which will ultimately mean choosing between a broader order with China at its center or a broader order with the developed democracies, including the United States at its center.
a very detailed answer, but was there support for the motion or? <laughs> you like these binaries. Okay, if, you, if you, you're, you're, you're putting a gun to my head, if things develop the way that I think they'll develop, I would suspect that Europe is going to end up leaning toward uh, the position that it has already had for a long time, which is drawing closer to a United States, which is also, I hope, drawing closer to Europe and uh, paying more attention to Europe's concerns and equities and acting as a true partner. It will definitely be interesting to see how this progresses here in Central Europe. But unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. It's really been a great conversation, Robert, and I hope that we can have you on again. I'll, I'll be glad to do it. And your program and your audience is increasingly important to the way that you know, not only U.S.-China relations goes, but to these questions about China's global governance and the way the whole world responds. Central and Eastern Europe play just a key, key role. For more on this pivotal region's engagement with China, please do visit the Choice website at chinaobservers.eu. Also, consider subscribing to our newsletter, where all of the prescient posts on the Choice platform are distilled down and sent directly to your inbox every month. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, on Twitter at China Observers, and on Facebook at China Observers and Central and Eastern Europe. And as always, remember to make the right choice join us for our next Voice for Choice podcast.